As the kids are heading out, I, I do hope that you guys are having a most wonderful Labor Day weekend. The weather has been absolutely amazing, has it not? Yeah, the weather's been absolutely amazing, which I know um, uh, in Indiana, you kind of got to knock on wood when you say that because tomorrow could be 95 with 100% humidity. Um, but, but it's been amazing weather, right? Uh, it gives us a glimpse that fall is on its way, which is the most wonderful time of the year. Amen? With it being Labor Day weekend, um, we now know who the real Christians are among us because we are here in this space and not at the lake house. Um, so I'm so glad you're with us this morning. When Jerry asked me if I would teach, and I said yes, and I uh, immediately looked at our church calendar to figure out what teaching series we were going to be in, only to find out that uh, we, we're not in a teaching series right now. We, we just finished the Philippian series. Scott finished us up last week with that, and then Jerry's kicking us off in a new series next week in the book of Acts. And so that leaves us here kind of in the middle. And so I thought to myself, I get to teach whatever I want. And that joy was immediately squashed because then I was reminded, there's way too many options. I can't handle this. And so um, I thought, what are we going to be teaching our students uh, next week? They're off this week because of Labor Day weekend. And I thought, well, next week, September 10th, we're going to start in with a new series for our students called Context. And we're going to look at how we approach this book, how we approach this book of books, which is maybe a better description. And I thought, um, well, in an effort to work smarter and not harder, which is um, just code for being lazy, I thought, you know what? You guys need to hear this too. And so today, we, you guys are going to get a glimpse of what the students are going to be getting in the coming weeks. And uh, with that, we're going to jump into our text this morning. And our text is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. So if you have a Bible, you can grab that. Or if you have the Bible app on your phone, you can follow along on the screens as well. And while you're looking that up, if you don't have a Bible, come and tell us. There's no shame in it. We would love to put a Bible in your hands. Um, so uh, keep that in mind. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 10 through 17. Now you have observed my teaching. My conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and my suffering, the things that happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But wicked people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving others and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Well, as I mentioned, we finished last week a series in Philippians. And in that series, we gave, talked a lot about context, whether you know it or not, because we talked about Paul's reality. And Paul's reality was that he was writing this letter to a church in Philippi while he was in prison. Right? Well, 2 Timothy, uh, we don't find Paul in much better shape. Paul is still in prison, and most scholars agree that 2 Timothy was the last letter that he wrote before he was killed. And so Paul, having been imprisoned for some time now, and most likely knowing that his days are numbered, um, he writes a letter to his friend Timothy. 
and talks about the importance of this book. This library of books talks about loss and talks about anger. It talks about money and fear and joy and doubt and grace and healing. And beyond that, these words show us truth. They show us what redemption and restoration look like. They show us what grace and love looks like. And these words, as Paul says, lead us to a Jesus that saves us. Now, real quick, this Bible, this book, is the best-selling book of all time. Have you guys ever heard that? Probably. Now, what I find fascinating is that this book is the best-selling book year after year, every year. It's not just the best-selling book of all time. It sells out year after year. Conservative estimates from 2015, so a couple years ago, are that 29 million copies of the Bible were sold in America that year. 29 million copies. And we spent nearly about half a billion dollars on Bibles. The Barna Group, which is an evangelical group that puts together polls and statistics and things like that, said that 91% of American households own at least one Bible. 91% own at least one Bible. The average American household owns four Bibles. Now, what I find fascinating is that Bible publishers sell 29 million copies a year of a book that nearly all of us already have. Right? I love Harry Potter. We have one copy of each book. Now, not only do we have these in our homes, but we can have them any way we want them, can't we? This past week, I took a little time and just got on Amazon.com and just kind of looked at some of the Bibles that are out there, and I couldn't help but uh, want to bring that to you guys this morning. And so here are some of the Bibles that I found. This is the Men of Integrity devotional Bible. It's great. It's geared towards men, and God knows us men need us some Bible. So that's a good thing, right? Then we have the Beautiful Word Bible. Isn't that pretty? It has all this really great artwork, and it highlights certain verses. But for some of you guys, I know that you want to color your own verses. And so for you guys, there's the beautiful word coloring Bible. You get to do your own coloring. Keeping with that color theme, there's the rainbow study Bible that highlights Bible passages by theme. And then we're going to switch gears out of the color. Here we have the soul surfer Bible. Uh, this is with notes and quotes from Bethany Hamilton, the, the girl who lost her arm to a shark um, some years ago. Uh, this is one of my favorites. This is the 252 uh, Boys Bible. Uh, it says, finally, a Bible just for boys. Uh, and then, I know you can't read this, is, the image isn't great, but the first bullet point down here in the bottom right-hand corner, it actually says, discover gross and gory Bible stuff. <laughs> I mean, what more could you ask for, Right? If that doesn't get a boy to read a Bible, I don't know that anything would. Not to leave out the girls, we have the Revolve Complete New Testament, which apparently has some great life application things, as you can see. Are you dating a godly guy? Um, and beauty secrets you've never heard before. I need all the help I can get, so I might pick that up. Then we have, this one's interesting, this is the Woman Thou Art Loosed Bible, which at first glance seems a little strange to me because the name that's in big font right there in the middle is, uh, is the name of a 60-year-old man. So I don't know where it, what's going on there. But for the kiddos, we have the Adventure Bible. That's fantastic, and that's now in full color. Uh, I've never seen the black and white, but I'm sure it's out there. Uh, not to be outdone by the Adventure Bible, there's Salty playing a mean tambourine on the front of that. He's uh, Salty's kid's Bible. Then we have the Bible Promise Book for Women, the Bible Promise Book for Men, and the Bible Promise Book for Life. 
I thought that might cover all the bases, but apparently it does not because there is the complete personalized Promise Bible in which if you give your name and some general information like where you live, where you're from, they will actually print the Bible with your name in it. So when God's promises come up, it might say, God promises John. God promises Liz. Now, I thought that was pretty specific. But if that's too general for you guys, we also have the complete personalized promise Bible for men, the complete personalized promise Bible for women, the complete personalized promise Bible on financial increase, and the complete personalized promise Bible on health and healing. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? I'm not making this stuff up. It's out there. Hear me, I'm not saying that this stuff is bad. Because God's word is God's word no matter what frame we put it in. What I am saying is that all these options are saying something about us. All these options are sending a message loud and clear that we can have it our way, any way we want it. And the problem with that mentality is that when we come to read this book, that gets us into trouble. When we think we can read this and have it our own way, we begin to read it incorrectly. Now, prepare yourself, because what I'm about to say might jar some of you. The Bible wasn't written to us. The Bible wasn't written to us. It was written for us, to be sure. But it wasn't written necessarily to us. The 66 books of the Bible were written to people that lived in different times, in different cultures, in different places. They spoke different languages. They had different beliefs and different values. They had different circumstances and different challenges than we have. I'm not saying that we can't learn from the Bible. I'm not saying that at all. Because I agree with Paul. I think, if we, we, I think if we look at this Bible, we find truth, we find grace, we find healing and salvation. But what can become a challenge for us as Americans, what can be challenging for us here in central Indiana in 2017, a very me-centered culture, what can become challenging is that we read this book with our own agendas. We read this book with the misconception that we can pull whatever verse we want from whatever book we want, whatever letter we want, whatever poem we want, and make it fit for us. We can flip through the pages, we can stop, we can point at a verse and say, that's what God has to say to me today. Meanwhile, we forget that there's a bigger story going on here. There's a lot of other books in this book. Now, I don't intend to step on anyone's toes, but be prepared. Here are a few verses that I think this happens with often. Luke chapter 11, verse 9. Luke chapter 11, verse 9 says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. This is a verse that kind of is the catalyst for what we call the name it and claim it gospel, right? Because we take it literally, and we say, well, if I ask for it, he's going to give it to me. If I want my new caddy, all I got to do is ask, right? Well, to understand Luke 11, 9, if we just move back just a few verses, the beginning of chapter 11, we see that the disciples come to Jesus, and the disciples ask Jesus, teach us how to pray. And Jesus teaches them the prayer that we all just said, the Lord's Prayer. And as far as I know, nowhere in the Lord's Prayer do we see Jesus claiming a new donkey. Nowhere do we see him claiming a pile of gold. Jesus is teaching us how to humbly come before God and ask for God's help to live the way he would have us live, to provide for us as we need provided for. That's the promise, not a new caddy. 
Another verse that we just dealt with last week, Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And Scott even mentioned this because Scott had the dreams of being a basketball player. Scott said this became his mantra for sports and for competition. And for us, it becomes the mantra of climbing the corporate ladder, right? Or, or, or hitting the winning home run or hitting the last second three-point shot. God's going to give that to me. But Philippians 4.13 is much more about being content and persevering through hard times because we know that Paul was in prison when he wrote it. So if you ever find yourself imprisoned or persecuted for your faith, it's probably a good time to, to remember that verse, not so much when you're on the church uh, softball team and you yell it out to your teammates in hopes that it's going to give them divine power to hit the next home run, right? I don't think that's what Paul had in mind. Last, Jeremiah 29, 11. I'm sure you guys have heard this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. We use this verse all the time with our high school graduates and our college graduates as they start to take steps toward their future, and we encourage them with these words. Or maybe we use this verse when a family has lost a loved one or a family is suffering. And I would say that this is a verse that we have to be especially careful of because I think it can set up unrealistic expectations. Because what if the grief doesn't go away? What if the cancer doesn't go away? Setting up unrealistic expectations is maybe one of the worst things that we can do for somebody who's new to this book or somebody who's new to this faith. And for Jeremiah 29, 11, all we have to do is look one verse earlier and we find out that Jeremiah is writing this to the Israelites who've been taken from their home and are in Babylon. They're foreigners in a foreign land. And Jeremiah is giving them words of encouragement. And I would say that this verse has more to do with God's character than it does a promise for all of us. This Bible isn't a collection of quotes or one-liners. It's literally the Word of God. And when we open it up, we begin to see this story that God has been weaving from the beginning. And we get, begin to realize that we play a part in that story, and we find ourselves in this book as we read it. I want you to hear this. How this book, how this story is read, and how it's communicated, and how it's taught, how it's lived, is pivotal to who we are as Christ followers. How we read it, how it's communicated, how it's taught, and how it's lived is pivotal to who we are as Christ followers, and it's crucial to how others see us and come to Jesus. And that said, how many times do we misquote or misuse verses in this book? It made me think of a video that I'd seen uh, not, not too long ago from a Christian comedian, John Christ, and the name of the video is this. You need to hear this so you get context. The name of the video is Lady at the Mall Who Has a Bible Verse for Everything. Check this out. Oh, I was going to go to Macy's, but Dillard's is having a sale. Man plans his steps, but the Lord directs his path. Look at these purses. Excuse me, this is fashion now? Lean not on your own understanding. Oh, Spencer's gifts? Mm-mm, guard your heart. Finish line? Oh, yes, run the race I have set before you. 30% off all things work together for good. Oh, would you look at these here? Run and not grow weary, walk and not faint. Uh, no thank you. I don't need any skincare samples. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Oh, 
there are Starbucks, thank heavens, streams in the desert. Look at these watches for such a time as this. Look at all this baggage. No, thank you. I have left my burdens at the cross. Oh, I love this bedding. Yes, all who are weary, he will give you rest. Look at these knives. These are perfect iron sharpens iron. Oh, man does not live by bread alone. Hey, Adam, you want to take a bite of this? Mm-mm, man's original sin. Microsoft only for me. Thank you. Oh, Lululemon, he will not tempt you beyond what you can handle. Oh, Zales, absolutely not. My treasure is in heaven. Payless is having a sale. Lead me not into temptation. Oh, judge all you want to. You without sin cast the first stone. Oh, love this hat. Look at this. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. I will dwell in the Nestle Toll House of the Lord forever. I come all the way in here for a sale and they don't have my size. Jesus, please, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. <laughs> Do any of you know anyone like that? Yeah, a few of you might. <laughs> When we open this book, we're reading words that are thousands of years old. In some cases, the words were literally written on stone tablets, and we read them on tablets made of metal and plastic, right? There's a huge gap there. There's a huge gap in time, a huge gap in culture, a huge gap in language. And so we have to be reminded when we open this book that we're a little bit detached and so we have to dig a little bit. We have to scratch at the surface a little bit to understand the culture and the history in which it was written. And so I thought, this morning, let's, let's just apply this a little bit. Let's talk about a story, a passage, and dig a little bit and scratch at it a little bit. And so if you have your Bible, look at Matthew 27, verse 45. Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. A little context, Jesus has been arrested at this point. He's been beaten He's been paraded through the streets, and now he's been crucified. We find ourselves at verse 45. From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when we read this at first glance, it's easy to see this as Jesus crying out, right? that's literally what he's saying. It's easy to see it as Jesus saying that this is too much. As Jesus saying, Dad, where are you? And like I said, it's easy to come to that conclusion because that's what he's saying. But if we dig a little bit and we scratch the surface a little bit, some of you might have a Bible that has a little footnote right next to that verse. And if you look down at the bottom of the page, it references you to another passage. It references you to Psalm 22. And so if we flip to Psalm 22, interestingly enough, we look at verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So then the question becomes, why? Why is Jesus, with his last few breaths, quoting the first verse of Psalm 22? And as we think through that question, we're going to take a real quick time out. We talked about this in the True North series. In the True North series, um, I mentioned the fact that we have to be reminded of first century Jewish culture. The, the world in which Jesus lived and walked and was crucified. In that culture, at about age six, you would go off to school, and you would begin to learn and study the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Not only would you begin to learn them and study them, but you would begin to memorize them. So that at about age 10, when you finished that first chunk of school, you would have that Torah memorized, the first five books. At age 10, you'd go on to the next level of school, and you would begin to study and learn the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. 
not just study and learn them, you would begin to memorize them. So that at about age 14, when you finish that second level of school, you would have pretty much the Old Testament Scripture memorized, Genesis to Malachi. They were reminded of the whole story, not just individual verses. Now, what's, if, if that wasn't impressive enough, I would say that there's probably one Old Testament book that they knew backwards and forwards like none other, and that would have been the book of Psalms, because the Psalms would have been sung in their home from the time that you were a child. And so these songs would have played, and you would have been reminded of the words, and you would know the book of Psalms very, very well. And as kids, we grow up, right, with our parents or with our grandparents, and we have music playing, and we begin to learn their songs. Songs are a pretty powerful thing. They become a part of who we are, the words do. As a kid, my mom and dad often had music playing in the home. And my mom was responsible for the music in the house. My dad was responsible for music in the car. Um, Well, my dad was responsible for music in the car when mom wasn't in the car. Um, My mom would listen to Glenn Campbell, Dolly Parton. She had every show tune album on the face of the planet. And so that's what I listened to a lot of. And then uh, when I got to ride in the car with dad, we got to listen to Bob Seger. We got to listen to Meatloaf. We got to listen to ELO. And we got to listen to Steppenwolf, Born to be Wild, right? I loved it. When you grow up around music, when you grow up around song, you don't even really have to memorize the words, do you? Because you sing it over and over again, and they just become a part of who you are. For instance, in reference to Dolly Parton, I don't know if I should be proud of this or not, but if you, if you were to say Jolene, if you just say that name, Jolene, I start in with the rest of it, right? Your beauty is beyond compare with flaming locks of auburn hair. Or if you say, just take those old records off the shelf, What's next? I'll sit and listen to them by myself. This kind of mu- this music has got no soul. I like the old time rock and roll. See, you guys got this. Maybe a more universal song that we could point to is Amazing Grace. If I say Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You guys know how to play this game. The same thing would have been true for the first century Jew when it came to their songs, when it came to the book of Psalms. For them, it wasn't Dolly Parton, it wasn't Bob Seger, and it wasn't Amazing Grace. It was David and the Psalms. And so if you gave them the first line, it'd be very similar to what we do. They'd fill in the blank. They would know what was happening next. They'd start the tune, and they would be reminded of the words. And so Jesus quotes the first line of Psalm 22, a song. He quotes it from the cross. So who is there? It says, Matthew says that he cried out in a loud voice. Who would have been there to hear him cry out in a loud voice? The people that wanted him dead were there to hear his words. They would have been gathered, there would have been a gathering of Jews there to see that he was crucified because they demanded it. They wanted to make sure that it actually happened. And to this crowd of Jews, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the crowd begins to play the tune, and they begin to be reminded of the words of that song. And so, um, I'm sure you all have it memorized, but just in case you don't, we're going to do a little exercise this morning. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I realize that that's a huge invitation for you to take a nap. Just listen to these words and pretend that you are there. You are a witness to Jesus' crucifixion. You hear Jesus' words, and you know this song. 
And here are the words that you're reminded of. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away? I cry out day and night, but you don't answer. Yet you are the holy God, ruling from your throne and praised by Israel. Our ancestors trusted you and you rescued them. When they cried out for help, you saved them. But I'm a worm, less than human, and I'm hated and rejected by people everywhere. Everyone who sees me makes fun and mocks me. They shake their heads, they mock me, and they say, Trust the Lord. If you're his favorite, let him protect you and keep you safe. From the day I was born, I've been in your care. And from the time of my birth, you have been my God. Don't be far when I'm in trouble with no one to help. Enemies are all around like a herd of wild bulls. My enemies are like lions roaring and attacking with jaws open wide. I have no more strength. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like melted wax. My strength is dried up and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Brutal enemies attack me like a pack of wild dogs, tearing at my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies just stare and sneer at me. They took my clothes and gambled for them. When I cry out, you listened and did not turn away. Everyone on this earth will remember you, Lord. In the future, everyone will worship and learn about you. People not yet born will be told, the Lord has saved us. Jesus makes reference to a song that was written four or five hundred years before this event even happened. And with his enemies there to watch, he reminds them of this song, a song where the words are describing the very moment they're witnessing. The crowd is scrolling through the words, and they're seeing these images. They're seeing men in the corner cast lots for Jesus' clothes. They're seeing people tempt Jesus, saying, if you are who you say you are, just come down off the cross. And I can't imagine the feelings that you would have as you played through these words, because Jesus, with his last few human breaths, takes the opportunity to remind people that he is who he said he was. And I can only imagine in that moment that there were probably Jews who began to walk away from the scene. Maybe they walked away ashamed, full of grief, realizing that they might have messed up with this move. But there might have been others who walked away from that scene, realizing for the first time that they are seeing their God in flesh and blood. That they are seeing their Savior that they've been waiting for for so long. That they're seeing God in God's grace. They're seeing God in His restoration. And they're seeing God in His redemption and His love for us. And in the same way that Christ revealed himself 2,000 years ago through a song, he reveals himself to us today 2,000 years later. He reveals himself through his church. He reveals himself through each other. He reveals himself through this book. And it's when he's revealed and together we recognize him for who he is, that we come together as a church, that we meet and we open this book and we begin to talk and we begin to remember the story that we're a part of, that God is weaving from beginning to now. And it's when we remember that story that we come together as a church and we come to this table 
We remember what was accomplished, and we remember that his story continues through us and through you. Amen.